Chapter 11 of The Three Hostages. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by K. L. Zelke. The Three Hostages by John Buchan. Chapter 11 How a German Engineer Found Strange Fishing. I got to Hull about six o'clock having left my car at the garage in york and finished the journey by train i had my kit in a small suitcase and rucksack and i waited on the quay till i saw dr newhover arrive with a lot of luggage and a big rod box when i reckoned he would be in his cabin arranging his belongings i went on board myself and went straight to my own cabin which was a comfortable two-berthed one well forward there I had sandwiches brought me, and settled myself to doze and read for thirty-six hours. All that night, and all next day, it blew fairly hard, and I remained quietly in my bunk, trying to read Boswell's Life of Johnson, and thanking my stars that I hadn't lived a thousand years earlier, and been a Viking. I didn't see myself allowing those short steep seas in an open galley i woke on the morning of the twenty-third to find the uneasy motion at an end and looking out of my porthole saw a space of green sunlit water a rocky beach and the white and red of a little town the godrum waited about an hour at stavanger so I gave Dr. Newhover time to get on shore before I had a hurried breakfast in the saloon and followed him. I saw him go off with two men and get on board a motor launch which was lying beside one of the jetties. The coast was now clear, so I went into the town and found the agents to whom Archie Roylance had cabled and learned that my own motor launch was ready and waiting in the inner harbor where the fishing boats lie. A clerk took me down there and introduced me to Jan, my skipper, a big, cheerful, bearded Norwegian, who had a smattering of English. I bought a quantity of provisions, and by ten o'clock we were on the move. I asked Jan about the route to Merdell, and he pointed out a moving speck a couple of miles ahead of us. "'That is Christian Egg's boat,' he said. "'He carries an English fisherman to Merdell.' and we follow. I got my glasses on the craft, and made out Newhover smoking in the stern. It was a gorgeous day, with that funny northern light which makes noon seem like early morning. I enjoyed every hour of it, partly because I had now a definite job before me, and partly because I was in the open air to which I properly belonged. I got no end of amusement watching the wildlife, the cormorants and elder duck on the little islands, and the seals with heads as round as medinas that slipped off the scurries at our approach. The air was chilly and fresh, but when we turned the corner of the Merdelfjord out of the sea wind and the sun climbed the sky, it was as warm as June. A big flat island we passed all short turf and rocky outcrops, was pointed out to me by Jan as Blackshom, 
soon we were shaping due east in an inlet which was surrounded by dark steep hills with the snow lying in the gullies i had boswell with me in two volumes the first i had read in the steamer and the second i was now starting on when it fell overboard through my getting up in a hurry to look at a flock of duck so i presented the odd volume to yawn and surrendered myself to tobacco and meditation in the afternoon the inlet narrowed to a fjord and the walls of hill grew steeper they were noble mountains cut sharp like the edge of the drakensberg and crowned with a line of snow so that they looked like a sugar-coated cake that had been sliced streams came out of the upper snow wreaths and hurled themselves down the steeps above a shimmering veil of mist and below a torrent of green water tumbling over pebbles to the sea the landscape and the weather lulled me to a delectable peace which refused to be disturbed by any looking before or after as some poet says newhover was ahead of me we never lost track of his launch and it was my business to see what he was up to and to keep myself out of his sight the ways and means of it i left to fortune to provide by and by the light grew dimmer and the fjord grew narrower so that dusk fell on us though looking back down the inlet we could see a bright twilight i assumed that newhover would go on to murdell and the fjord's head where the scarso entered the sea and had decided to stop at hag a village two miles short of it on the south shore we came to hag about half-past eight in a wonderful purple dusk for the place lay right under the shadow of a great cliff i gave yon full instructions he was to wait for me and expect me when i turned up and to provision himself from the village on no account must he come up to murdell or go out of sight or hail of the boat he seemed to relish the prospect of a few days idleness for he landed me at a wooden jetty in a great good humour and wished me sport what he thought i was after i cannot imagine for i departed with a rucksack on my back and a stout stick in my hand which scarcely suggested a chase i was in good spirits myself as i stretched my legs on the road which led from hog to murdell the upper fjord lay black on my left hand the mountains rose black on my right but though i walked in darkness i could see twilight ahead of me where the hills fell back from the scarso valley that wonderful apple-green twilight which even in spring is all the northern night i had never seen it before and i suppose something in my blood answered to the place for my father used to say that the haneys came originally from norse stock there was a jolly crying of birds from the waters ducks and geese and oyster catchers and sandpipers and now and then would come a great splash as if a salmon were jumping in the brackish tides on his way to the scarso i was thinking longingly of my rods left behind when on turning a corner the lights of Modell showed ahead and it seemed to me that i had better be thinking of my next step i knew no norwegian 
but I counted on finding natives who could speak English, seeing so many of them have been in England or America. Newhover, I assumed, would go to the one hotel, and it was for me to find lodging elsewhere. I began to think this spying business might be more difficult than I had thought. For if he saw me, he would recognize me, and that must not happen. I was ready, of course, with the story of a walking tour, but he would be certain to suspect, and certain to let Medina know. Well, a lodging for the night was my first business, and I must start inquiries. Presently I came to the little pier of Merdell, which was short of the village itself. There were several men sitting, smoking, on barrels and coils of rope, and one who stood at the end, looking out to where Christian Egg's boat, which had brought Newhover, lay moored. I turned down the road to it, for it seemed a place to gather information. I said good evening to the men, and was just about to ask them for advice about quarters, when the man who had been looking out to sea turned round at the sound of my voice. He seemed an oldish fellow, with rather a stoop in his back, wearing an ancient shooting-jacket. The light was bad, but there was something in the cut of his jib that struck me as familiar, though I couldn't put a name to it. I spoke to the Norwegians in English, but it was obvious that I had hit on a bunch of indifferent linguists. They shook their heads, and one pointed to the village as if to tell me that I would be better understood there. Then the man in the shooting-jacket spoke. "'Perhaps I can help,' he said. "'There is a good inn in Murdell, which at this season is not full.' He spoke excellent English, but it was obvious that he wasn't an Englishman. There was an unmistakable emphasis on the gutturals. I doubt the inn may be too good for my purse, I said. I am on a walking tour and must lodge cheaply. He laughed pleasantly. There may be accommodations elsewhere. Peter Bjor may have a spare bed. I'm going that way, sir, and can direct you. He had turned towards me, and his figure caught the beam of the riding light of the motor launch. I saw a thin, sunburnt face, with a very pleasant expression, and an untidy, grizzled beard. Then I knew him, and I could have shouted with amazement at the chance which had brought us two together again. We walked side by side up the jetty road and onto the highway. I think— I said, that we have met before, Herr Gordian. He stopped short. That is my name, but I do not, I do not think. Do you remember a certain Dutchman called Cornelius Brandt, whom you entertained at your country house one night in December 15? He looked searchingly in my face. I remember, he said. I also remember a Mr. Richard Hanno, one of Guggenheim's engineers, with whom I talked at Constantinople. The same, I said. For a moment I was not clear how he was going to take the revelation, but his next action reassured me. 
and i saw that i had not been wrong in my estimate of the one german i have ever wholeheartedly liked he began to laugh a friendly tolerant laugh Kretze turken he cried it is indeed romantic i have often wondered whether i should see or hear of you again and behold you step out of the darkness on a norwegian fjord you bear no malice i said i served my country as you served yours i played fair as you played fair malice he cried but we are gentlemen also we are not children i rejoice to see that you have survived the war i have always wished you well for you are a very bold and brave man not a bit of it i said only lucky but what name shall i call you now brant or hanu my name is richard hanny but for the present i am calling myself cornelius brand for a reason which i am going to tell you i had suddenly made up my mind to take gaudian into my full confidence he seemed to have been sent by providence for that purpose and i was not going to let such a chance slip but at my words he stopped short mr hanny he said i do not want your confidence you are still engaged i take it to your country's service i do not question your motive but remember i am a german and i cannot be party to the pursuit of one of my countrymen however base i may think him i could only stare but i am not in my country's service i stammered i left it at the armistice and i'm a farmer now do english farmers travel in norway under false names that's a private business which i want to explain to you i assure you there is no german in it i want to keep an eye on the doings of a fashionable english doctor i must believe you he said after a pause but two hours ago a man arrived in the launch you see anchored out there he is a fisherman and is now at the inn that man is known to me too well known he is a german who during the war served germany in secret ways in america and elsewhere i did not love him and i think he did my country grievous ill but that is a matter for us germans to settle and not for foreigners i know your man as dr newhover of wimple street so he said he has taken again his father's name which was newhofer we knew him as christopher what do you want with him nothing that any honest german wouldn't approve and there and then i gave him a sketch of the medina business he exclaimed in horror mr hanney he said hesitatingly you are being honest with me i swear by all that's holy i am telling you the plain truth and the full truth newhover may have done anything you jolly well like in the war that's all washed out i'm after him to get a line on the foul business which is english in origin i want to put a spoke in the wheel of english criminals and to save innocent lives besides 
New Hover is only a subordinate. I don't propose to raise a hand against him, only to find out what he is doing. He held out his hand. I believe you, he said, and if I can, I will help you. He conducted me through the long street of the village, past the inn, where I supposed Newhover was now going to bed, and out onto the road, which ran up the Scarso Valley. We came in sight of the river, a mighty current full of melted snow, sweeping in noble curves through the meadowland in that uncanny dusk. It appeared that he lodged with Peter Boyer, who had a spare bed, and when we reached the cottage, which stood a hundred yards from the highway on the very brink of the stream, Peter was willing to let me have it. His wife gave us supper, an omelette, smoked salmon, and some excellent Norwegian beer, and after it I got out my map and had a survey of the neighborhood. Gaudian gave me a grisly picture of the condition of his own country. It seemed that the downfall of the old regime had carried with it the decent wise men like himself, who had opposed its follies, but had lined up with it on patriotic grounds when the war began. He said that Germany was no place for a moderate man, and that the power lie with the bloated industrialists, who were piling up fortunes abroad while they were wrecking their country at home. The only opposition, he said, came from the communists who were half-witted, and the monarchists who wanted the impossible. Reason is not listened to, and I fear there is no salvation till my poor people have passed through the last extremity. You foreign powers have hastened our destruction, when you had it in your hands to save us. I think you have met well, but you have been blind, for you have not supported our moderate men, and have by your harshness played the game of the wreckers among us. It appeared that he was very poor now, like all the professional classes. I thought it odd that this man, who had a worldwide reputation as an engineer, couldn't earn a big income in any country he chose. Then I saw that it was because he had lost the wish to make money. He had seen too deep into the vanity of human wishes to have any ambition left. He was unmarried, with no near relations, and he found his pleasure in living simply in remote country places and watching flowers and beasts. He had been a keen fisherman, but couldn't afford a good beat, so he leased a few hundred yards from a farmer who had not enough water to get a proper rent for it and he did a lot of trout-fishing in the tarns, high up in the hills, and in the scarso above the foss. As he sat facing me beyond the stove, with his kind, sad brown eyes and his rugged face, I thought how like he was to a Scottish moorland shepherd. I had liked him when I first saw him in Stum's company, but now... I liked him so much that because of him I was prepared to think better of the whole German race. 
i asked him if he had heard of any other englishman in the valley any one of the name of jason for instance he said no he had been there for three weeks but the fishing did not begin for another fortnight and foreign visitors had not yet arrived then i asked him about the Sater farms and he said that few of these were open yet since the high pastures were not ready one or two on the lower altitudes might be already inhabited but not many though the winter had been a mild one and the spring had come early look at the scotoso he said usually in april it is quite low for the snowfields have not begun to melt but to-day it is as brimming as if it were the middle of may he went over the map with me an inch to a mile one i had got in london and showed me the lie of the land the satyrs were mostly farther up the river reached by paths up the tributary glens there was a good running road the length of the valley but no side roads to connect with the parallel glens the uradel and the bremendal i found indeed one track marked on the map which led to the uradel by a place called snassen yes said gaudian that is the only thing in the way of what you soldiers would call lateral communications i've walked it and i'm sorry for the man who tries the road in bad weather you can see the beginning of the track from this house it climbs up beside the torrent just across the valley snassen is more or less inhabited all the year round and i suppose you would call it a kind of satyr it is a sort of shelter hut for travellers taking that road in the summer it is a paradise for flowers you would be surprised at the way the natives can cross the hills even in winter snassen belongs to the big farm two miles upstream which carries with it the best beat on the scarso also there is said to be first-class riper shooting later in the year and an occasional bear by the way i rather fancy someone told me that the whole thing was owned by or had been leased to an englishman you are rich you see and you do not live much in norway for poor people i slept like a log on a bed quite as hard as a log and woke to a brilliant blue morning with the birds in the pine woods fairly riotous and snipe drumming in the boggy meadows and the scarso coming down like a sea i could see the water almost up to the pathway of a long wooden bridge that led to the big farm gadian had spoken of i got my glass on the turret opposite and saw the track to snassen winding up beside it till it was lost in a fold of a ravine above it i scanned the crown of the ridge which was there much lower than on the sides of the fjord there was no snow to be seen and i knew by a sort of instinct that if i got up there i should find a broad tableland of squelching pastures with old snowdrifts in the hollows and tracks of scrubby dwarf birch while i was waiting for breakfast i heard a noise from the high road 
and saw a couple of the little conveyances they call stokeries passing. My glass showed me Dr. Newhover in the first, and a quantity of luggage in the second. They took the road across the wooden bridge to the big farm, and I could see the splash of their wheels at the far end of it, where the river was over the road. So Dr. Newhover, or some friend of his, was the lessee of this famous fishing, which carried with it the shootings on the uplands behind it. I rather thought I should spend the day finding out more about Snasson, and I counted myself lucky to have got quarters in such an excellent observation post as Peter Boyer's cottage. I wouldn't go near the track to Snasson till I saw what Newhover did. Zagodian and I sat patiently at Peter Boyer's window. About ten o'clock, a couple of ponies, laden with Kit in charge of a tow-headed boy, appeared at the foot of the track and slowly climbed up the ravine. An hour later came Dr. Newhover, in a suit that looked like khaki and wearing a long Macintosh cape. He strode out well and breasted the steep path like a mountaineer. I wanted to go off myself in pursuit of him, keeping well behind, but Gaudian very sensibly pointed out how sparse the cover was, and that if he saw a man on that lonely road, he would certainly want to know all about him. We sat out of doors after luncheon, in a pleasant glare of the sun, and by and by were rewarded by the sight of the pack-ponies returning, laden with a different size and shape of kit. They did not stop at the big farm, but crossed the wooden bridge and took the high road for Merdell. I concluded that this was the baggage of the man whom Newhover had replaced, and that he was returning to Stavanger in Christian Egg's boat. About tea-time, the man himself appeared, Jason, or whatever his name was. I saw two figures come down the ravine by the Snassen Road, and stop at the foot to exchange farewells. One of them turned to go back, and I saw that this was Newhover, climbing with great strides like a man accustomed to hills. The other crossed the bridge and passed within hail of us. A foppish young man, my glass told me, wearing smart riding breeches and with an aquascutum slung over his shoulder. I was very satisfied with what I had learned. I had seen Newhover replace his predecessor, just as Medina had planned, and knew where he was lodged. Whatever his secret was, it was hidden in Snasson, and to Snasson I would presently go. Gaudian advised me to wait till after supper, when there would be light enough to find the way, and not too much to betray us. So we both lay down and slept for four hours, and took the road about ten-thirty, as fresh as yearlings. It was a noble night, windless and mild, and though darkness lurked in the thickets and folds of the hill, the sky was filled with a translucent amethyst glow. I felt as if I were out on some sporting expedition, and enjoyed every moment of the walk with that strung-up expectant enjoyment which one gets in any form of chase. 
the torrent made wild music on our left hand, grumbling in pits and shooting over ledges with a sound like a snowslip. There was every kind of bird about, but I had to guess at them by their sounds and size, for there was no color in that shadowy world. By and by we reached the top and had a light cold wind in our faces blowing from the snowy mountains to the north. The place seemed a huge broken tableland, and every hollow glistened as if filled with snow or water. There were big, dark shapes ahead of us, which I took to be the hills beyond the Uradal. Here it was not so easy to follow the track, which twined about in order to avoid the boggy patches, and Godian and I frequently strayed from it and took tosses over snags of juniper. Once I was up against an iron pole, and to my surprise saw wires above. Godian nodded. "'Snasin is on the telephone,' he said. "'I had hoped to see some light in the house, "'so as to tell it from a distance. "'But we did not realize its presence "'till we were close upon it, "'standing a little back from the path "'as dark as a tombstone. "'The inhabitants must have gone early to bed, "'for there was no sign of life within. "'It was a two-storied erection of wood,' stoutly built with broad eaves to the roof adjacent there stood a big barn or hayshed and behind it some other outbuildings which might have been byers or dairies we walked stealthily round the place and were amazed at its utter stillness there was no sound of an animal moving in the steading and when a brace of mallards flew overhead we started at the noise like burglars at the creaking of a board. Short of burglary, there was nothing further to be done. So we took the road home and scrambled at a great pace down the ravine, for it was chilly on the tableland. Before we went to bed, we had settled that next day, Gaudian should go up to Snassen like an ordinary tourist and make some excuse to get inside while I would take a long tramp over the plateau, keeping well away from the house, in case there might be something ado in that barren region. Next morning saw the same cloudless weather, and we started off about ten o'clock. I had a glorious but perfectly futile day. I went up the Scarso to well above the Foss, and then climbed the north wall of the valley by a gully choked with brushwood, which gave out long before the top, and left me to finish my ascent by way of some very loose screes and unpleasant boiler plates. I reached the plateau much farther to the east, where it was at a greater altitude, so that I looked down upon the depression where ran the track to Uradal. I struck due north among boggy meadows, and the remains of old snowdrifts, through whose fringes flowers were showing, till I was almost on the edge of Uradal, and looked away beyond it to a fine cluster of rock peaks, streaked with patches of ice. The Uradal Glen was so deep-cut that I could not see into it. So I moved west, and struck the Murdal track, well to the north of Snassen. After that, I fetched a circuit behind Snassen, 
and had a good view of the house from the distance of about half a mile. Two of its chimneys were smoking, and there were sounds of farm work from the yard. There was no sign of livestock, but it looked as if someone was repairing the sheds against the summer season. I waited for more than an hour, but I saw no human being, so I turned homeward and made a careful descent by the ravine, reconnoitring every corner in case I should run into Newhover. I found that Godin had returned before me. When I asked him what luck he had had, he shook his head. I played the part of a very wee traveller, and asked for milk. An ugly woman gave me beer. She said she had no milk, till the cattle came up from the valleys. She would not talk, and she was deaf. She said an English heir had the riper shooting, but lived in Trisil. That is the name of the big farm, by the Scarso. She would tell me no more and I saw no other person, but I observed that Snassen is larger than I thought. There are rooms built out at the back, which we thought were barns. There is ample space there for a man to be concealed. I asked him if he had any plan, and he said he thought of going boldly up next day and asking for Newhover whom he could say he had seen passing Peter Boyer's cottage. He disliked the man, but had never openly quarreled with him. I approved of that, but in the meantime I resolved to do something on my own account that night. I was getting anxious, for I felt that my time was growing desperately short. It was now the 25th of April, and I was due back in London by the 29th, and if I failed to turn up, Medina would make inquiries at Fossey Manor and suspect. I had made up my mind to go alone that night to Snassen and do a little Pacific burgling. I set out about eleven and put my pistol in my pocket, as well as my flask and sandwiches and electric torch, for it occurred to me that anything might happen. I made good going across the bridge and up the first part of the track, for I wanted to have as much time as possible for my job. My haste was nearly my undoing, for instead of reconnoitring and keeping my ears open, I strode up the hill as if I had been walking to make a record. It was by the mercy of heaven that I was at a point where an outjutting boulder made a sharp corner when I was suddenly aware that someone was coming down the road. I flattened myself into the shadow and saw Newhover. He did not see or hear me, for he too was preoccupied. He was descending at a good pace, and he must have started in a hurry, for he had no hat. His longish, blond locks were all tousled, and his face seemed sharper than usual with anxiety. I wondered what on earth had happened, and my first notion was to follow him downhill and then it occurred to me that his absence gave me a sovereign chance at Snassen. But if the household was astir, there might be other travellers on the road, and it behooved me to go warily. Now, near the top of the ravine, just under the edge of the tableland, there was a considerable patch of wood, birches, juniper, and wind-blown pines, 
for there the torrent flowed in a kind of cup after tumbling off the plateau and before hurtling itself down to the valley here it was possible to find an alternative road to the path so i dived in among the matted whortleberries and moss-covered boulders i had not gone ten yards before i realized that there was somebody or something else in the thicket there was a sound of plunging ahead of me then the crack of a rotten log then the noise of a falling stone it might be a beast but it struck me that no wild thing would move so awkwardly only human boots make that kind of clumsy slipping if this was somebody from snassen what was he doing off the track could he be watching me well i proposed to do a little stalking on my own account i got down on all fours and crawled in cover in the direction of the sound it was very dark there but i could see a faint light where the scrub thinned round the stream soon i was at the edge of the yeasty water the sounds had stopped but suddenly they began again a little farther up and there was a scuffle as if part of the bank had given way the man whoever he was seemed to be trying to cross that would be a dangerous thing to do for the torrent was wide and very strong i crawled a yard or two upstream and then in an open patch saw what was happening a fallen pine made a crazy bridge to a great rock from which the rest of the current might conceivably be leaped a man was kneeling on the bridge and beginning to move along it but as i looked the rotten thing gave way and the next i saw he was struggling in the foam it was all the matter of a fraction of a second and before i knew i was leaning over the brink and clutching at an arm i gripped it braced one leg against a rock and hauled the owner close on to the edge out of the main current he seemed to have taken no hurt for he found a foothold and scarcely needed my help to scramble up beside me then to my surprise he went for me tooth and nail it was like the assault of a wild beast and its suddenness rolled me on my back i felt hands on my throat and grew angry caught the wrist and wrenched them away i flung a leg over his back and got uppermost and after that he was at my mercy he seemed to realize it too for he lay quite quiet and did not struggle what the devil do you mean i said angrily you'd have been drowned but for me and then you try to throttle me i got up my torch and had a look at him it was the figure of a slight man dressed in rough homespun such as norwegian farm lads wear his face was shallow and pinched and decorated with the most preposterous whippish beard and his hair was cut roughly as if with garden shears the eyes that looked up at me were as scared and wild as a deer's what the devil do you mean i repeated and then to my surprise he replied in english let me up he said i'm too tired to fight i'll go back with you light broke in on me don't worry old chap i said soothingly you're going back with me but not to that infernal satyr we've met before you know 
your Lord Mercat, and I saw you ride Red Prince last year at the house grind. He was sitting up, staring at me like a ghost. Who are you? Oh, for God's sake, who are you? Haney's my name. I live at Fossey Manor in the Cotswolds. You once came to dine with us before the Haythrop Ball. Haney, he repeated stumblingly. I, I remember, I think. Remember, remember Lady Haney. Yes, and Fossey. It's on the road between... He scrambled to his feet. Oh, sir, get me away. He's after me. The new devil with a long face. The man who first brought me here. I don't know what has happened to me. "'But I've been mad a long time, and I've only got sane in the last days. "'Then I remembered, and I ran away. "'But they're after me. Oh, quick, quick, let's hide.' "'See here, my lad,' I said, and took out my pistol. "'The first man that lays a hand on you, I shoot, and I don't miss. "'You're as safe now as if you were at home. "'But this is no place to talk.' and I've the devil of a lot to tell you. I'm going to take you down with me to my lodging in the valley. But they're hunting for you, so we've got to go cannily. Are you fit to walk? Well, do exactly as I tell you, and in an hour you'll be having a long drink and looking up timetables. I consider that journey back a creditable piece of piloting. The poor boy was underfed and shaking with excitement. But he stepped out gallantly, and obeyed me like a lamb. We kept off the track, so as to muffle our steps in grass, and took every corner, like scouts in reconnaissance. We met Newhover coming back, but we heard him a long way off, and were in good cover when he passed. He was hurrying as furiously as ever, and I could hear his labored breathing. After that, we had a safe road over the meadow, but we crossed the bridge most circumspectly, making sure that there was no one in the landscape. About half-past one, I pushed open Gaudian's bedroom window, woke him, and begged him to forage for food and drink. "'Did you get into Snassen?' he asked sleepily. "'No, but I've found what we've been looking for. One of the three hostages is at this moment.' sitting on your cabin box. End of chapter 11